Hello and welcome to this month's Stroke SIG podcast on controversial pushing presented by the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I will be your host today as we will be having a conversation with Dr. Sujay Galeen and Dr. Victoria Pardo, who are the authors of an upcoming Synapse Center course entitled Physical Therapy Assessment and Management of Controversial Pushing Following Stroke. Our first guest is Dr. Galeen. He is a physical therapist and a biomedical engineer and he currently serves as the chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Galeen's research emphasizes functional electrical stimulation and robotic assistive technology to improve mobility and function. As a biomedical engineer, Dr. Galeen also researches the development and use of wearable technology to assist older adults and amputees of all ages. Our second guest is Dr. Pardo. She is an assistant professor in the physical therapy program at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, where she teaches clinical medicine, neuroevaluation, neurotreatment, and rehab procedures. She has over 25 years of clinical experience in the treatment of adults with neurologic conditions. She has also been active in research on neurologic outcome measures and more recently on the effects of using the new step in healthy and stroke populations. Vicki has a short story to tell us on how this whole topic got started. Okay, so hi everyone. My name is Vicki Pardo. I am an assistant professor at the Wayne State University in Detroit. I just want to tell you a little bit about how I got into doing this research with Pusher Syndrome. I, many moons ago, I was at University of Indianapolis doing my Master's of Health Science, and I took a course with Pam Duncan, yes, the Pam Duncan, and I wrote a paper on pusher syndrome because I'd had some patients with that, and it was a balance course, and on the, the Saturday of the course, she said, who did that paper on pusher syndrome, and I, you know, put my hand up, and she goes, you, you need to do research on this, and I said, well, I'm just a clinician, I don't do research. She goes, it doesn't matter. All you need to do is, with the patients that you see, you do outcome measures before, you do outcome measures after, and then you write up about it. And she actually made me come up with a plan that Saturday night and give it to her Sunday. And she said, do it. And I did. It was just the push I needed. And that's how I got started doing this research. So just a little plug for all of you who are listening who don't think that you can do research, that you're just a clinician. No one is just a clinician. I just basically did what I was doing with my patients, and I did the same outcome measures at admission and discharge, and then I wrote up about it, and that's how it happened. So uh, I just like to do that plug, because I never thought I'd be doing research either, and it's, it was hard, and it was a lot of work, but it's definitely doable. So that's my story. That's great. That's a, a great little piece to, to keep in mind for all the clinicians out there. Um, that uh, sometimes you just need that little nudge. So yes. it's, it's great to hear that. And um, Sujay, uh, we're gonna start with you for questions. Um, so the first question, I really wanna just make sure everybody's on the same page um, with definitions and stuff. So what is pusher syndrome and are there other terms? What terms should we really be using? So uh, the pusher syndrome, as uh, this particular podcast is all about, is about a condition where an individual has a perceptual deficits of their vertical orientation. So they have a feeling that their vertical is aligned slightly away from what we perceive as a gravitational center of the vertical. So that's where pusher syndrome comes from. The alternative sort of uh, 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 names for it would be like controversial uh, pushing, um, and um, that's the um, other sort of name for it. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll chime in on this one. So um, what is pusher syndrome? So basically, one thing to remember is that 
we are actually uh, trying to get everyone to say controversive pushing instead of pusher syndrome now. It's a push from the ANPT because let me just read you a list of all the different terms that are out there that could mean pusher syndrome that are out there. So there's pusher syndrome, there's ipsilateral pushing, there's unilateral neglect syndrome, which is wrong because neglect is not pusher syndrome. There's lateral pulsion, there's controversive lateral pulsion, and there's pushing behavior. These terms have been interchanged and used in the literature over the past many years, and they all mean the same thing. And so it's really important that we start using one term so everyone uses the same term and doesn't call things different things. So that is, we're supposed to be calling it controversial pushing now. So that's gonna be the title of the course in Synapse that I'm just getting ready to record and that will be available in the next couple of months. Um, Another thing, so what does pusher syndrome look like? Okay, it's a patient with hemiplegia, and what they do is they will push strongly towards their involved side. So when I talk about what they push with, there. so let's say they are a left hemi, their right arm and right leg are pushing hard into extension and abduction that's trying to tip them away from their good side. Um, they, these patients have very decreased awareness of midline. They don't know where their midline is, where upright is. Um, and if the therapist tries to correct them back to midline, they actively push against the therapist. Okay. Now, there are a couple of other um, things that you can see in many patients with, with controversial pushing, but not all. One of them is uh, neglect of the involved side. Um, looking at all the literature, about 80% of patients who have controversial pushing also have that hemi neglect. But um, if you look at the old books and uh, Steps to Follow, okay, uh, by Ann Davies, it's um, it is, um, she called it a pusher syndrome where they all have neglect, but it's been proven in the literature that they don't all have neglect, just many of them do. So which brain structures are typically associated with pushing syndrome? Um, is this condition that impacts patients with stroke only? So when we talk about the structures of the brain, and if we were to look at the literature, one area of the brain that's commonly implicated with controversial pushing or pusher syndrome is the postrolateral thalamus. So that's what most literature will tell you. However, most recently, a study by Bayer et al. in 2013 actually did some imaging on individuals with stroke, and they imaged both individuals with the left-sided stroke as well as a right-sided stroke. And what they found was in individuals who had a right hemispheric lesion, this is the right side of the brain that is affected, they found that the posterior part of the insula, the superior temporal gyrus, and an area called the operculum were the most affected areas. Whereas in individuals with a left hemispheric lesion or left brain lesion, they found that the area associated or along the anterior insular cortex, the operculum, the internal capsule, and the lateral thalamus were implicated. So the underlying uh, anatomical implication for this area of lesion is that oftentimes we think of the brain lesion, but what we also need to understand with all this brain lesion is whatever information is coming from the sensory system from all parts of the body is getting processed in these areas. So primarily what is happening here is a processing issue of bringing together the vestibular, the somatosensory and the visual information together, there is a processing problem in here. And these are the areas of the brain that are implicated in that processing. And thalamus is the first part where the sensory information enters, if you like, to the brain. And from there, it gets distributed to different parts of the brain. Okay. Uh, is this a condition that 
impacts only patients who have had a stroke? Yes, it is. And um, actually, uh, Vicky might talk a little bit about this later on differential diagnosis, but primarily Pusher syndrome or controversial uh, uh, pushing is associated with individuals with stroke. Okay. Um, actually, let me chime in on that one. Um, and in terms of differential diagnosis, there is an, an article of Spontelli in 2004 that's just proving that there were people who have controversial pushing, um, and, and you'll see this when we, on Synapse in, in the course, but out of the eight patients that they had in the study, um, where are we, three of them had traumatic brain injuries and one had a brain tumor. So by far the vast majority of people who have controversial pushing are strokes, but there are patients who will present with these symptoms and they have not had a stroke. They've had um, damage to the brain in these areas that Sujay was talking about previously. Is there a more common side for pusher syndrome, right versus left? Again, there seems to be a more right hemispheric lesion that seems to be implicated. Um, I believe there is a study uh, which actually showed there was significantly greater proportion of right hemispheric lesion that resulted in Pusher syndrome. Actually, I'll chime in clinically. Uh, yeah. Most of the people who are listening who've worked with these patients, it is, uh, you would think of a patient with Pusher syndrome, oh, sorry, controversial pushing, who have a left hemi. It's, it seems to be clinically by far more, there'll be a left hemiparetic patient who has controversial pushing. But there are patients who have the right hemiparesis as well. But clinically, not from any study, but just anecdotally, it seems to be more, much more common in the left hemis, hem, hemiparesis, right CBA patients. That is correct. I said right hemispheric lesion. Yeah, yeah you were right. Yep. How would you categorize the impairments of controversial pushing? I would categorize it more as a perceptual uh, problem, a perceptual of the vertical um, in very simple terms. So what usually happens in a normal kind of postural orientation is that we use visual, vestibular, and somatosensory information to orient ourselves to the vertical. So when you see uh, visually, when you look at uh, cues in your environment, you're able to orient yourself to the vertical. But in addition, we also get information from our vestibular uh, uh, organs, which gives us uh, the gravitational orientation as to where the gravitation exists. So then what we're able to do, or what our brain is able to do, is match the visual framework and the gravitational framework together, and we are able to establish the vertical. This particular processing of bringing together the visual and the vestibular is where the impairment lies in individuals that uh, pushes syndrome or controversy pushing. And because they're unable to match these two, they feel that their vertical is slightly um, moved away from the vertical orientation towards their effect, uh, non-affected side. And therefore, they're correcting themselves by pushing themselves toward the impaired side to go towards what they think is the vertical. So that is what happens in Pusher syndrome. What is the prognosis of functional recovery for individuals with controversial pushing with and without treatment? Okay, so that's really interesting. So most of us who've worked with these patients, we realize these are really tough patients to treat. They are a very challenging transfer. Gait is difficult. You know, there's lots of things. You're not just dealing with the hemiparetic side, you're dealing with their good side that keeps grabbing onto things and pushing them over. So it's really difficult. So in terms of what you find in the literature, um, 
you know, it, it's kind of a mixed bag, but patients who, um, one thing by one study by Santos Pontelli from 2011, they looked at patients who really didn't have good access to physiotherapy in, in this case, and they remained lying in bed all day. So what they found, so if they don't have the proper treatment, it was three patients with controversial pushing. They had limited physio, uh, less than one session per week, and they were left lying in bed all day due to poor socioeconomic conditions. So that, um, basically lying in bed, they weren't able to be upright and experience being in a vertical position. They had profound impacts to the recovery and had all three had persistent controversial pushing one to two years post-stroke. So this, that's an extreme. Those are the people who don't get the right therapy because they have to experience being upright again to retrain their brain where the middle is. Now, for the most part with us, um, you know, when, we, when they do get good therapy, the pro prognosis is at about six months, most of the patients, if they're getting some sort of therapy, the, the pushing behavior has gone away, um, has resolved. Um, but the, if they don't have the good therapy or if they don't have any therapy at all, it is very prolonged. Um, they tend to have a much longer length of stay and they tend to have a poor outcome as in having to go to a nursing home instead of being able to be discharged home. Oh. So that's kind of a nutshell what you find in the literature about it. That's great. That's uh, nice to know that there is some uh, research showing both the, the long-term effect and really the positive effect that you can have, um, no matter how challenging the population is, that um, we are really doing good work for them. So what are the key clinical signs to aid a clinician in identifying controversial pushing? Okay, so... Basically, it's those symptoms that I, that I mentioned earlier. So if you have a patient and they have the hemiparesis, often they have the hemisensory loss as well, and they may or may not have the neglect, and they keep tipping themselves over. They can't seem to find where the middle is. It's not that they're just weak on their hemiside and they're tipping over because they, you know, because that arm can't catch them. They are actively tipping themselves over towards their weak side. That is that that clue to you that they are actually pushing and they don't know where midline is when you ask them they think their middle is way over to the side and then that extension of the arm and the leg so those are the key signs so next question are there other impairments that commonly occur with controversial pushing you've talked about a few but go through exactly what you think and any other tidbits we should know okay so i think what i'll do is i will give you some information from um there's a uh, a manuscript that got accepted that Sujay and I wrote about about this uh, my work for Pam Duncan um, the five uh, it was five patients that I saw years ago so I'll just kind of give you an example of each of the five participants what what they had going on. So first participant, so right frontal parietal artery infarct, they had left neglect, dysarthria, and dysphagia, and severely impaired sensation, and pretty much um, stage two Brunstrom arm and leg. The next person, same area for the, for the infarct, left neglect, dysarthria, severely impaired light touch and proprio and similar very poor function arm and leg next person neglect dysphagia lethargy severely impaired sensation and flaccid arm and leg 
Next guy, neglect and dysphagia, severely impaired sensation and flaccid arm and leg. And last one, this was actually someone who had a left middle cerebral artery. So this was some, one, of the, one of the five had a right hemiparesis with the pushing behavior. So she had right neglect. She had global aphasia too, which was really something, and dysphagia. Impaired sensation and flaccid stage one arm and leg. So these people, this was at admission, what their uh, assessment was. So severely, severely impaired and involved, difficult to treat, uh, dependent times two transfers. So um, a real handful and kind of scary for therapists. You go, what do you do with that? How do you treat this is the big question. Why we want to have more of this information out there for all of us. How do you differentiate controversial pushing from other similar syndromes? kind of go through what the other syndromes might be? Okay, so um, this is the article by Roller from JNPT in 2004. And so she just kind of had a really nice table. And you, if you go to Synapse later on for the, for the course, you'll be able to see it. So the four conditions that she kind of compared were pusher syndrome or controversial pushing, thalamic astasia, Wallenberg syndrome, and vestibular cortex stroke. They all had kind of similarities she wanted to kind of tease out how you'd find which one is which. So I want to just read you um, definitions of what these things are. So we know what pusher syndrome is, okay? Thalamic astasia is the inability to stand unsupported following a lesion of the posterolateral thalamus, okay? So the same area of the brain, according to Sujay, right? Um, but they have this thalamic astasia. Then there's Wallenberg syndrome. So that's found in patients with acute unilateral brainstem infarctions in the medulla. And they tend to fall sideways towards the side of the lesion, not away from the side of the lesion. And then the last one, was vestibular cortex stroke. So that is a cerebral lesion in the posterior insula. And they tend to have a perceived tilt of the subjective visual vertical and an intact um, subjective postural vertical. So I'm going to explain what those things are. Um, so this is, Sujay kind of uh, referred to it a little bit, but it's some work by Dr. Um, Hans-Otto Karnath out of Germany. He did some studies where he had these patients with controversial pushing. That he had them in a, strapped into a motorized chair. So they were very safe. They weren't afraid of falling. And, and they were seated. And they were in a dark room. And this chair, they would tilt it to the left and to the right at different angles. And they asked them, and so the room was dark, so they had no visual input. And they asked them to tell, to say when they felt they were upright. And the patients who had controversial pushing actually felt that they were upright 18 degrees off of center. Okay, so that's called their subjective postural vertical. Do they know when their body is straight? The other thing is subjective visual vertical. So that is those same patients were in a chair in a dark room and in front of them, they just kind of held up this uh, luminous rod. So it's like a stick that glowed and they would just move the stick and in different increments and say, tell me when that stick is vertical. And the patients with controversial pushing were right on. They knew when that stick was vertical. They just didn't know when their own body was vertical. So that's that mismatch. So the subjective visual vertical is what they can see, and the subjective postural vertical is what they feel in their own body. And so that there's this mismatch, like Sujay was talking about. They're getting this information, and the brain doesn't know what to do with it because it's a conflict in the brain. So I had to talk about that because that's how you differentiate some of these different um, things. So the pusher syndrome or controversial pushing, their subjective visual vertical, they know when things in their environment are straight, are vertical, but they don't know when their own body is vertical. 
okay? With thalamic astasia, okay, um, they tend to fall backwards instead of sideways, like controversial pushing. And they have, well, they also have subjective visual vertical, so they know when their vision is okay. Wallenberg syndrome, they have an impaired visual vertical. So the people have, with the Wallenbergs, you can tell the difference between pushing and Wallenbergs because of that visual vertical. Okay, the Wallenberg, they don't know when things in their environment are straight. And then vestibular cortex stroke, that's a big one because they looked into it because someone with pusher syndrome, sorry, controversial pushing, I have to reprogram myself to say it right. They, everyone used to think, oh, it must be something vestibular, right? Because it looks like they can't, they don't know where they are in space. But people with vestibular issues, right, they have an impaired visual vertical. They cannot write their head. They don't know when things in their, in their line of sight are straight. But they do have a good postural vertical. They know when their body is straight, but they don't know when things in the environment are straight. So it's the exact opposite of pusher syndrome. So I'm trying to explain this to people who don't. So it, when you're listening to this, if you're confused, pull up the article by Margaret Roller in JNPT 2004, and it's table one. Um, and so you can look at that. That might help you to clarify some of this. But that's my best description of it. And I do have to agree when I studied for the NCS, that article was very helpful in very clearly delineating the, the different ones. So, yes. um, all right, so outcome measures. Are there outcome measures that we can use to assess controversial pushing severity and to assess improvement or decline? Yes. So there are two outcome measures that we know of. One is the scale of controversial pushing, which was created by Dr. Carnath that I mentioned earlier. And the other one is called the Burke lateral pulsion scale. Okay. So let's talk with, start with the scale of controversial pushing. It's quite easy to use. And basically, you're looking at the patient in sitting and then in standing, and you're scoring them on three different things. The first thing is their spontaneous body posture. When they're just sitting there or just standing there, what are they doing? And they get a score from either a 1, a 0.75, a 0.25, or a 0. If, you know, they are severely tilting and they actually fall over to that side when they're not even doing anything, they get a, a, a 1. They get a 0.75 if it's a severe tilt, but they don't actually fall over, and then all the way down to a 0, which is they don't tilt, right? And you give them a score out of 1, one for sitting and one for standing. The next criteria is do they use their good arm and leg in an abduction and extension to push themselves over towards the hemi side. So they get a, a score of one if they do it when they're not even, you haven't even asked them to do anything. They're just sitting there doing nothing and they are actively pushing themselves over. They get a 0.5 if they do it just when you've asked, you tell them, okay, we're about to stand up. You, you're about to do something and they get scared and they start pushing. And they get a zero if they don't do that pushing with the arm and leg. And the last one you're grading them on is their resistance to you try, use a therapist trying to correct them back to midline. So if they're tipping themselves over and you physically try to correct them back to midline, if they resist you, they get a one. If they don't resist you, it's a zero. So with this SCP, it's a total, a max score of six. So six out of six means severe pushing. So this is a very easy scale to use. This is what I used for, for my research all those years ago. Very easy to use clinically. You don't need any equipment. It's quite nice. Okay. So some of the research behind it has said that it's not very specific. Um, and so I guess because of that, the Burke lateral pulsion scale was started. Um, and that one actually looks at many, many more items. Okay. They score people in supine, so just lying down, 
and, and rolling, and then sitting, and then standing, and then transfers, and then there was walking. So instead of just sitting and standing like the SCP, this one has five different areas that they're looking at. It's a lot more complicated. I tried to use it clinically, and I have videos of it. So when you look on Synapse, when that comes up, you'll see videos of me with my lab assistant, Melissa, trying to show you how to do it. And there's little quizzes so you can practice um, learning how to use the BLS. But the problem is that when you're scoring the sitting one, you're supposed to score them based on when they start pushing. Okay, so I'll just do the sitting one here, for example. They can get a zero, one, two, or three. They get a zero if they don't resist you, trying to get them back. They get a one if they resist you, but only in the last five degrees getting up to, to vertical. They get a two if they resist you in five to 10 degrees from vertical. And they get a three if they start resisting you at more than 10 degrees off of vertical. And I don't know how to measure that. Five and 10 degrees is, how do you see that, right? I've heard some people say, oh yes, you can have a grid. Well, I don't know who has a grid in their clinic. And so maybe some people who, who use this um, you know, and like it might have something to say about that. But I find this one a little more complicated, but it is definitely much more sensitive. The research on it has proven that you know, it is definitely more sensitive and it's able to tease out um, because it looks at so many different areas, maybe people who have mild uh, controversy pushing. So that's just my opinion on it. They're both there. Um, clinically, I like the simpler one, but you know, if I had a way to measure five degrees versus 10 degrees off of vertical, like with a grid behind the person, um, and then it's definitely much more specific, uh, but I, uh, I'm not a fan yet. Let's put it that way. Um, and now, so I think the part that a lot of our listeners will be really interested in is the treatment part, because this is a particularly difficult population to, to do treatment with. So the first question is, um, are there any evidence-based treatment strategies that are effective in treating uh, controversial pushing? Okay, so I basically have the, the slides here for what's gonna go on that Synapse course. So I'm gonna go through that. There isn't much, right? The, if you do a lit search on controversial pushing, there's a lot about what it is and where is the lesion, right? And about these outcome measures. But in terms of treatment, it's hard because for one thing, these patients are kind of rare, so it's hard to get a, a big enough end. But I broke it down um, into kind of different I treatment ideas. So the first one was motor relearning approach. So this was a case study of one. And he basically said that um, you just allow the patients to repeatedly experience the consequences, so tipping over, have them recognize that they're not upright, and use tactile and verbal feedback to orient them to true vertical. And he stated that that one person, after 15 minutes of treatment, um, was cured. <laughs> but he admitted that it doesn't work for patients with aphasia, cognitive issues, or anxiety. Well, that's most of our patients. Um, you know, a lot, to be able to use motor relearning approach, the patient really has to be cognitively intact to be aware of what they're doing. Um, but another thing by Bohannon, this guy, he said visual cues do not help. He was very adamant that it should be um, it should be cues tactile and verbal only. He said visual feedback does not help. He's the only one in all the literature that says that. And he was actually so adamant about it. He wrote a letter to the editor about Carnath's work that that the visual should not be used. But nobody agrees with him, right? So that that was motor relearning approach. Then there's somatosensory input. Some people looked into weight bearing. 
Um, they found there was not really an immediate effect on the pushing behavior. Um, one group tried galvanic vestibular stimulation. So it was an article by Kruer in 2013. Um, I guess stemming back to the idea that maybe this was a vestibular issue, right? But they found that there were no significant effects on doing galvanic vestibular stimulation. I don't know that my patients would be too thrilled with me with me trying to do that with them. So I, I wouldn't do that. Um, then body weight supported treadmill training. So there's a, um, an article by Kruer in 2013. They actually had 25 people. It's a pretty big sample. Um, they found that there was a significant effect on the Burke lateral pulsion score okay, um, when compared to just using visual feedback alone. And basically the idea was that in body weight supported treadmill training, they are forced to be upright for a certain amount of time in a very safe environment because they're strapped in, right? So the, the fear of falling decreases and when fear of falling decreases, the tone and everything will decrease. And it basically helps to, the idea, they, what they said, recalibrates, recalibrates their sense of verticality. Okay. Another more recent article from 2017 by Romick Sheldon and, and Andrea Kimelat, it was a, it was a um, sample size of one, but it was one patient using body weight support treadmill training, and they did lateral stepping on the treadmill. They basically, it looks like they had a, a, a light gate, and they had the patient sideways on a treadmill stepping sideways. Um, and this one person, their, their score on the SCP decreased from 3.75 out of 6 to 0.75. And the same idea, it's a safe environment, it's supportive, lots of practice being vertical, and it's very task-specific, okay? They also mentioned using a mirror for the visual feedback and a slider shoe on the hemi side to help that leg step better, okay? Um, there's another group that did body weight supported treadmill training, but that's a bit of a stretch. They called it lower limb robot for 20 minutes daily, but there was no picture of it. They don't know what it was, and they just called it a lower limb robot. So I don't, I, I, I clumped it in with the body weight support treadmill training. That was just my best guess of what it was. Then there was visual feedback training. So a few groups did that because the vision is intact, right? Um, and they found, um, that one group found that the computer-generated group did better, um, computer-generated visual feedback, than, but both improved, so visual feedback did help. Um, and then there was some work by Bretz et al, B-R-O-E-T-Z, um, oh, sorry, I'm Canadian, I say Z, B-R-O-E-T-Z. Um, so she used to work with Carnaf in Germany. She was in his uh, group, so she, was, she helped to start the uh, scale of controversy pushing. Then N of 8, and basically they definitely use visual feedback training, um, trying to allow that patient to realize and recalibrate their brain, using lots of visual input to teach them where vertical is having them explore the visual surroundings and to be able to do some reaching over towards the good side so that they can learn that it's okay to go to in a left hemi to go over to the right um, so she did some work with that and found that it was very beneficial for the patient and then basically what i have after that is um, the case series that sujay and i are um, are involved in that's going to come out in neuro rehab um, mine was basically it just so happened that the the intuitive approach I used to treating these patients meshed exactly with what Carnath and Bretz used to say about using a visual. I used to use mirrors and a lot of practice sitting upright. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of all this, the treatment interventions are there. Um, 
and it I don't I'm not going to say them all because we don't have time for that but I really encourage people to if you didn't go to CSM and see this lecture um, you know it will be on synapse for everyone to see and I detail all the key areas of what you can do in all the different positions and sitting and standing sit to stand and gait all those little tricks to help the, the patient um, move better and recalibrate where their midline is. That's awesome. We'll have to look out for that. Yeah. Is there a progression of recovery that you typically see in the clinic? Well, and as I always say to my patients or to my students, the answer is it depends in neuro. There isn't really a one answer. These patients tend to be slower than patients who have a stroke and do not have the controversy of pushing. Um, what I spent a lot of time doing first, I mean, you have to do everything, right? Because you don't have many days in inpatient rehab. You have to do the transfers. You have to do the card transfer. You have to do all of that. But I spent a significant amount of time in sitting first and just getting them aware of where midline is. So just first finding it, feeling it, seeing it in the mirror and seeing when they're straight, and then a lot of activity reaching over to the right to teach them how to first find midline and then how to reach out of midline and regain it and not tip over to the hemi side. So it, that groundwork will help with the transfers and the gait and everything else because they need to learn where the midline is or else everything is affected, right? Yeah, totally agree, so true. Is there a progression to the treatments that I should be using? Kind of. I mean, it, and once again, it depends. Uh, always challenge the patients, but you need to make sure you're tapping into what is available to them. So, you know, definitely use vision as much as possible. Teach them to use things in their environment, whether you have a mirror with a string down the middle of it. I've been known to put a piece of tape down the middle of their shirt and have a piece of tape on the mirror and have them practice trying to line themselves up with, you know, so the two stripes line up. Um, lots of reaching activities. Um, but don't challenge. So for one thing with the reaching, definitely start over with reaching to, so that this is for a left hemipretic patient, do a lot of work reaching over to the right um, and, and then just to midline. And then maybe once they can handle that, reaching forward in midline a little bit or up in midline. And then after that, start reaching over to the left. Because if you do the reaching to the left too early, they're just going to tip over. They often have a stage one or two arm and leg, right? So they can't really support themselves. I tend to use my NDT training and I'm sitting beside them getting weight bearing in their left arm and their left leg. Um, but that, that arm and leg really can't catch them. So you want to train their core and their trunk so they can regain midline. That's awesome. Great information. I think that's that's really helpful and conceptualizes it, it really well um, for those who are, are struggling for even just where to start. Yeah. Because um, that can be a challenge. Yes. Okay. So for patients who do not recover well, what consent, what compensatory strategies can we teach um, to them and their caregivers? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I know that I always involve the caregivers as much as possible because, you know, they had an hour and a half a day with me. Um, so I told them to always be on that left side when they're talking to them, to have them practice the wheelchair propulsion, um, to do as much as they can, but just to try and talk to them, say, look at that, try and straighten yourself up, you know, and just to increase the awareness so that OT, PT, speech, nursing, and the family, everyone is saying the same thing to the patient. Um, compensatory, it's just going to be, you know, if you can't get that transfer, 
um, cleaned up. It's a scary transfer. Families have trouble handling even a max transfer, right? So they might have to have a lift at home. This patient might have to end up going to a nursing home because the family can't, you know, um, take care of them. So getting that right um, treatment at that important time, that important window of time when you can retrain and recalibrate the brain to teach them where midline is, everything else falls into place. Um, you know, it's... It's really, really complicated, and it's, it's, it's tough to teach caregivers how to do this stuff because it's not safe. You need to know what you're doing. You can't just have, you know, the husband doing this stuff if he doesn't know what to look for. So I don't have a good answer for that one. I'm going to go a little bit further on that. And just for general, like, bullet points, which side would you recommend um, weight shifting? What kind of cues are you given? Can you give us a little bit more just to? Sure. Oh, maybe I'll go through some of these key factors to success that are going to be on the, so, um, okay, so sitting balance, okay, the key factors to success that I have here, patients seated at the edge of the mat with their feet supported, use a mirror to increase visual feedback, so they have a poor sense of postural vertical, but the mirror allows them to access that intact sense of visual vertical, right, the goal is to have the patient achieve then maintain and then regain midline. That's kind of the order. So first just get them there and try and hold and get there and then to hold it without you touching them and then have them reach and get back using their trunk and not their arm. Um, so using visual, verbal, verbal, tactile cueing and you taper the support as soon as possible, which is kind of, we know that, right? A mm -hmm. um, couple of tips, that pushing arm. Okay, that arm will grab onto anything, that right arm for a left hemi, and they're just always pushing, and their arm is propping on their leg. You could put their right hand on your shoulder if you're sitting in front of them, so that way you can feel if they're pushing. Um, you can put their forearm on a Swiss ball or something mobile, so they can't really push off of something that moves. Um, one other thing I do is uh, have them go palm up on their thigh, so their right hand, instead of it propping, on their right leg, I tell them to go palm up so they can't really push very hard. And I tend to tap on the right shoulder and tell them, and they're looking in the mirror, drop that shoulder because they, they only have that one arm that works and they keep trying to do something with it. If I can get them to relax that shoulder down, the pushing t seems to reduce. Does that help? That's great. That's okay. awesome information. And I think it's uh, quick little tidbits and, and can really be used in a clinic right away. So that's awesome. Um, so the last question I have for um, probably both of you, um, this is a challenging population to work with. Um, what advice would you give to students or newer clinicians when they're first dealing with someone in this con with this condition? Because um, it, it is pretty rare and some people may not have seen it in a clinical when they have somebody with them right away. Um, so what what do you think? Okay, so if you're lucky enough to work in a setting where you have a team, right? Hopefully, if it's something you've never seen before, and this, this goes with any, anything we do in NeuroPT, if it's something you'd, you have no experience with, see if there's a senior PT who has some experience and have them mentor you and work together and talk through things, right? Uh, hopefully, there's somebody there who can give you some advice, or if it's an OT, right, who, who has some experience with that, use your team, right? Very, very important. If you, unfortunately, there's nobody there who has experience with this, and you're, or you're on your own, maybe you're doing home care, right, and you have this, um, I would suggest um, looking at some of these articles. The article by Brett's has some good examples, and um, 
you know, the article that Sujay and I are publishing in Neuro Rehab has a lot of these tips that are written out. I tried to make it so that it's key factors to increase success. Everything that I knew how to do in all the different positions, what, you know, all the tricks and what to do. Um, there aren't a lot of resources out there, and which is why people seem so excited about hearing about, you know, the Synapse course or this podcast. Um, it's a complicated um, patient population to treat and if we can get more resources on what to do um, I know there are some treatment I don't some people you know don't believe in NDT but there's an NDT textbook that has a whole chapter on controversial pushing and some really nice and it kind of blends the NDT techniques and how to help someone with uh, controversial pushing I actually went to a course in September in uh, near Toronto um, and it was NDT for controversial pushing and it really blends well with what I do it's just because I am NDT trained as well so I tend to use those handling skills and these ideas from Carnath's work um, and I blend them together and that's how I treat patients so there are resources but there aren't there's more coming but there aren't enough yet very much agreed and I would like to chime in very much with what uh, Vicky had explained so far. Yes, it is a very complicated condition. My recommendation to clinicians as well as students is that understand that this is not a sensing issue, but a processing issue. And keeping that in mind, as Vicky had outlined in her uh, treatment techniques, focus more on giving as many cues as possible to the individual to, chat, to engage all of the systems, the sensory systems, in order to... Uh, re-educate, if you like, the pastoral vertical. And by giving them those cues, you're definitely giving them more the opportunities to learn the right vertical orientation. That's exactly what the treatment, I think, should be focused on. And more importantly, I would say, refer to the articles and also a podcast. That's a very good reason why you may have to listen to our podcast and to the literature that we're going to be publishing soon in neurorehabilitation. All right. Well, that sounds like great advice from both of you. Thank you both for being part of this and, and joining us and educating everybody out there. Um, if you guys have any final parting words. Um. You know, I, I think if you, if you um, Google my name, you will find the handout from CSM that has some of this information. So, you know, if you really want this information right away before the article comes out in Neuro Rehab, I believe it's there, that handout from CSM 2017. So people will have access to that as well. If they want to see, um, I mean, the video wasn't there. I show a video of a patient with a controversial pushing, but everything else is pretty much there. So um, it might be a nice place to start. Thank you. That's awesome. And I would like to just say thanks to the Academy of Neurological Physical Therapy for you know, sort of pioneering uh, podcasts as well as uh, the course, like the one that myself and Vicky had the opportunity to put forward, because this is truly a great resource for physical therapists, especially with limited resources, sometimes having difficulty access journal articles. I think this sort of work is very much welcome, and I greatly congratulate and uh, thank the Academy for doing this for all of the clinicians out there, as well as the researchers. Thank you. Thank you to our guests today for all the information that they have shared with us, and we will look forward to their upcoming course. Lastly, we want to invite everyone to join us again next month when we are having a conversation about knowledge translation with Dr. Amy York. Looking forward to having you join us next time.